0: Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond at Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. We talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we are talking about menopause and mental health, high functioning depression, with an expert who has really, like her name is popping up everywhere. She was just on Oprah's conversation with menopause, and she is Dr. Judith Joseph. And Dr. Joseph is a board-certified psychiatrist. And Bridget and I have been following her for a while, and she talks about how menopause is not a mental health issue, but it mimics one. And we have found so many women struggling with mental health issues during menopause, but aren't being addressed by doctors. I think the conversation that we have with Dr. Joseph about the difference between depression and mood changes during menopause is really important. And she uses the acronym TIEs, which are thoughts, identity loss, emotional dysregulation, and sleep. She really shows distinctions between depression and menopause And our mental health.
1: I thought it was really interesting that she talked about how some women will think that they're just now developing ADHD or they're just now developing these different things where it is, you know, maybe a symptom of menopause. And how a lot of doctors, when you go to your clinician and you describe these things, you might be prescribed something that maybe isn't really what needs to be done to help you through this time of your life. And it really was amazing to me that, you know, I didn't think about the ADHD aspect. If you can walk
0: into your doctor's office with education and knowledge that they may not even have, you're going to have options that are actually going to address your symptoms versus getting a blanket, medication, that really isn't going to do very much. And Bridget and I both talked about those experiences where doctors have not listened.
1: Make sure that you are following her on Instagram or TikTok because her videos are incredible. And when I started following her and saw her videos and really, I don't know when she has time to do this because she is so busy, but they're really great in the way that she positions uh, the questions and the answers and the dynamics between people. It really, you'll stop and you'll think, is that what, is that what, What's happening to me? Is that what's going on? And then you can just talk more about it. Just like Colleen said, then you're empowered when you visit your doctor. So we're going to get started talking with
0: Dr. Joseph about menopause, depression, and how to tell the difference. We'll talk to you after. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, we have a really great conversation on mental health and menopause. And we have invited Dr. Judith Joseph, who's a board-certified psychiatrist. And you may recognize her from social media because she has like over a million followers. But we're going to talk about mental health and menopause. So let me start by saying welcome to the show, Dr. Joseph. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start with a statement you had made when you were talking on the Oprah show, and it's probably a statement you've made before, but you mentioned menopause is not a mental health issue, but it mimics one. And I think that's... Like I don't think a lot of women or a lot of doctors even realize that. Can we start there and talk
2: about what you mean by that? Absolutely. Menopause, by definition, happens after a year of a loss of a period uh, and... And it is really a transition in a woman's body that occurs due to uh, changes with the ovaries. Now, um, mental health conditions such as depression or anxiety can have a lot of the symptoms that are similar to what you see in uh, perimenopause uh, due to the hormonal fluctuations. And because of that overlap and seemingly, you know, the similarities, it's often missed diagnosed um, as a major depressive disorder. So perimenopausal mood symptoms can mimic a major depressive disorder, but they're not equivalent. And the reason that's important to distinguish the two is because the treatments can be very different. For example, there are some studies that indicate that if a woman is experiencing these um, mood issues early in perimenopause, that, that she may benefit from hormonal treatment. Um, But if that same woman, let's say a decade earlier, was having these symptoms, we would not be thinking about hormones. We'd be thinking about other evidence-based treatments like uh, an antidepressant or cognitive behavioral therapy or other issues, other types of uh, treatments um, for depressive symptoms. And I think this is confusing because when we say depressive symptoms in um, psychiatry and, and psychology, depressive symptoms are things like poor sleep, uh, changes in appetite, hopelessness, low mood. And these symptoms can be seen in conditions that have more of a medical ideology, a medical route. Um, and so I think that's why it can be very confusing for people going through these changes because what they appear to be experiencing can mimic a major depressive episode but it is not identical
1: yes and then you also you know went to Washington D.C. for the menopause um, to have menopause recognized with let's with talk the research right? yes how you know how can we get this word out to people and to women
2: I do think that it's important to educate yourself um, and you know it's somewhat controversial because it's it, the onus shouldn't be on women. However, we have to be aware and acknowledge that these gaps of knowledge exist within the medical system, not because doctors don't want to treat patients or because they don't have a desire to do what's right, but because there are very... Um, known gaps within medical education. For example, there was a huge study in 2019 that showed that when you sampled a lot of people who had just graduated medical school and who were in fields that were more um, traditional in terms of serving women's health, like family medicine, GYN, and um, primary care, that many of these um, recent graduates had very little menopause education in medical school. And even during their uh, training post-medical school, they, um, something like only 58% had one lecture in menopause. So it's not that the doctors don't want to know. It's just that there were gaps in uh, medical education that existed. Um, and so for that reason, many doctors get can make an incorrect diagnosis because of that gap in their knowledge. So how do we address this gap? You know, yes, number one, we have to start educating medical doctors when they're in training and when they're in medical school, but the amount of time that it would take to produce doctors who are competent in menopause healthcare to meet the demand would be decades. So one of the ways to address this um, is to have patients educating themselves. So in the same way that you would, if you became pregnant, you would start reading. You know, what to do when you're expecting, or you'd be reading about, you know, the baby's health and so forth. You want to start learning about your own health and start recognizing some of the symptoms of perimenopause that can. Begin as early as 10 years prior to the loss of your period in menopause. So start preparing in your 30s and 40s for the changes that are happening so that you have the best outcome. And that way you become an active part of your treatment team. And what does that mean? So you're not just a passive participant in your healthcare, you're actually a part of the team. So you're coming to your doctor with a list of symptoms, with a list of questions, um, you know, with data that you read, with Things that you've seen online that are from evidence-based and reputable sources so that you are an active part of the treatment team. Know what medications you've taken in the past. Know your medical history. Know your family history. Because all of these things gives your doctor a clear picture of you. And you want to be active in the treatment team. You don't want to be a passive person in your care.
0: You also talk about when hormones are affecting mental health, the T-I-E-S Of method, and I I was hoping we could break that down. So, the first, the T is your thoughts. Can you talk about cognitive changes?
2: Yeah, so I am a psychiatrist, meaning meaning that I can prescribe and I can provide therapy. Um, I went to medical school so that I could do both because sometimes you do need to approach mental health conditions with that holistic view. And one of the things that I noticed during the pandemic, because I do treat children as well as adults, was that there were stimulant shortages. So a lot of people were at home self-diagnosing with having ADHD. And many times in midlife, not to say this doesn't happen, but many times in midlife, people will self-diagnose as having ADHD, go to the doctor, and then I get a referral for a woman in her... In our, um, you know, late forties, early fifties, who's like all of a sudden have an ADHD. Well, that's not the way that ADHD presents. ADHD is a childhood condition. However, and so by definition, it starts. The symptoms start before the age of twelve. However, I was having a lot of referrals for women who were saying that they had ADHD for the first time in their in their like middle life. And what I was finding was that many of these women were actually experiencing something called brain fog. So they were forgetful. They had issues with time management that they never had before. Um, you know, they had memory problems that they never had before. So these were executive functioning issues that they had never had and they were suddenly having them. And they, were, they, You know, it's not like a sudden abrupt thing, but they noticed along over time, especially from being at home and not having that clear boundary between work and home life and having all these distractions that it was becoming more prominent and problematic. And so uh thought issues are something that you you can see over time in your perimenopause in like the decade leading up to the loss of your period um but you know if you're not aware this is happening you you think you internalize it and you think there's something wrong with you and many women are multitaskers you know they're doing multiple things they're being a mother they're working at home or, but sometimes they're at work they have careers they're entrepreneurs they're doing a million things they're taking care of older parents So having this part of your identity loss, right, like not being able to do all these things at once can be a real hit to your self-confidence. And so the the I is identity loss. So you feel like you don't know who you are anymore. Because of these changes that also happen in your body, you may feel that there are limitations or changes in the things that you can do physically. For example... One of the symptoms of perimenopause is, you know, joint pain. And for some people, they're they don't find themselves as flexible as they used to. They may have shoulder pain, so they're not able to engage in activities that they used to, or it's more challenging. So there can be that loss of identity. And um, so that's the I in ties between mental health and, and menopause. The E is emotions. Like I mentioned previously, hormonal fluctuations can lead to feelings of um, low mood or anxiety. And these are emotional symptoms that sometimes people are moody and they feel like, oh my gosh, I I was never this moody or I'm irritable. And it, it can be really distressing. And the S is sleep. So sleep issues are known to happen usually they present as sleep latency issues so difficulty falling asleep. And then when you wake up, you don't feel refreshed. So you're not feeling as if you're getting restorative sleep. And and this could happen for a variety of reasons. Um, The sleep architecture is thought to be heavily impacted by the hormonal fluctuations. And also uh, in midlife, some women develop sleep apnea, which can contribute to worsened insomnia and worsened restorative sleep. So the T-I-E-S, the ties of menopause, is something that I developed as an acronym mostly because I teach young doctors and students, but also because I want to teach my patients because they're active participants in their treatment plan. I want them to know what to look for so that they don't feel surprised. And in mental health, you know, there's something called affect labeling. If you know how you're feeling and if you can give a name to your feeling, you actually have reduced anxiety because the human brain wants to know what's happening. And if the human brain doesn't know what's happening, it's confused and afraid. So knowing that these things can happen in itself is therapeutic. And if you go to your doctor and you're like, I've been experiencing the ties, right? And I know the three Ps, right? The three Ps meaning that there are differences between actual hormonal fluctuations leading to mood symptoms versus major depressive disorder. So the three Ps are a loss of period. Major depressive disorder does not include a loss of period. Um, physical changes don't happen with major depressive disorder. So, physical symptoms like hot flashes, palpitations, skin changes, itchiness, those don't happen with major depressive disorder. And the last P is a past history. So, if you don't have a past history of depression or family depression, you know, less likely due to um, uh, major depressive disorder. And, and more likely due to an uh, onset of perimenopausal mood changes. So those, if you know those things when you go to your doctor, you're already helping your doctor, you're already ahead of the game. But if you know nothing when you go to your doctor and you're like, oh, I have all these symptoms and I don't know what's happening and I feel like I'm losing myself and my mind, what what's going to happen is you're going to be referred to um, the wrong source for help and you're not going to get the uh, to the bottom of what's really... Um, at the root of these issues. And so we want to make sure that patients feel educated and empowered so that they are an active part of the treatment team. And, and that's why I use HISE as an acronym to, for psychoeducation because I think it's easy to remember.
1: And we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. Vichy is a French skincare brand recommended by 50,000 dermatologists worldwide. They have over 30 years of expertise in menopause skincare, and their Neovita line helps your skin look and feel radiant. Learn more at VichyUSA.com. Vichy is a proud sponsor of Hot Flashes and Cold Topics. And we're back. I am a big follow of your, follower of yours on Instagram. And I just have to say, your videos are just They're so helpful. One of those that stands out to me is high-functioning depression. Can you share a little bit about what high-functioning depression
2: is? So things like uh, imposter syndrome and burnout, no one would argue that those things don't exist, but they haven't quite made it into the Bible of psychiatry, the DSM-5. But if I go up to anyone on the street and I say, imposter syndrome isn't real, they'll be like, are you kidding me? I've experienced that before. Um, High-functioning depression is something that I've noticed over the course of the pandemic. Um, and I, I not only see patients in a private practice, but I also have a clinical research site where I do research on uh, several indications, including depression in pediatric and adult populations uh, and so what I was finding was that when you enroll patients in clinical studies, they have to meet criteria per the study for a major depressive disorder when you're enrolling them in, in depression studies. And one of the symptoms of major depressive disorder is anhedonia, which is a loss of pleasure, a loss of interest. A lot of patients were coming in saying, I feel meh, right? Meh, blah. And they were just not enjoying life um but these patients weren't meeting criteria for major depressive disorder because they were actually exceeding functioning and you have to have a loss of functioning or significant distress and these patients didn't have either of those so they had a lot of the symptoms of depression including the anhedonia the meh or blah but they weren't really meeting criteria for major depression because they still were you know doing well they were still meeting all their functioning at home at work and they weren't necessarily in significant distress so I st- I started to think about this model and how we tell patients, you know, well, you don't meet criteria, you don't fit into a box. Why don't you come back once you've lost functioning and you're really in distress? Well, I think that's a broken model. And I get why the model exists. You have to be able to bill. You have to be able to check a box so that you can then prescribe, then you can, um, you know, code an in insurance. But are we as mental health providers missing an opportunity to intervene before the person who's functioning before they're in distress, before things are falling apart. And so I started putting out some content um, about this over the course of the pandemic because people were in need of mental health information but they weren't necessarily getting it from reputable sources because doctors are so busy, they don't have time to post. But I happen to teach a course at NYU that I've taught for about 10 years to young doctors about how to be responsible giving information over media And one of the tools that I use is social media to educate the masses. And so I started putting out um, these videos about high-functioning depression. And um, my social media team, they were like, I was in the clinic seeing patients. They were like, you got to check your your TikTok. You're like blowing up. And I was like, I don't have time seeing patients. At the end of the day, I went and I checked it and it was like had gone viral. Millions of people had said, that's me. And so I thought, oh, Okay, maybe it just got viral because I paired it with a viral song. Then I decided, all right, let me see what else I'm seeing in my practice with regards to high-functioning depression. Started picking out videos on anhedonia, which is a loss of pleasure and interest, that blah, meh feeling. And that went viral. So I thought, okay, there's something to this. Let me start looking at um, what we know about depression, anhedonia, and these people who are not quite loss of functioning. They're not quite to the point of distress, but they, they could eventually get there. And and why is this happening? So in, in medical school, we learn about the biopsychosocial model for symptoms and diseases. So the bio meaning the body and um, genetics and the psycho meaning the mind, uh, you know, mental health history and the social meaning the environment. And I started looking at these individuals. And what I found was that some of them did have, you know, histories of depression in their families or personal histories um, so that's a bio model. Um, the psycho, so the psycho part of this biopsychosocial is 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 what, from a mental health perspective, makes them predisposed to this. And and I think a lot of them have unprocessed trauma, not like necessarily trauma like combat or assault or anything serious, but also like people have had histories of financial stressors that were quite tra- traumatizing, like the little teas and histories of other um things that happen in their lives like so let's say the pandemic which was a major trauma to us all that we haven't really processed um and then the social part of that model is what's happening in society these days where that could be contributed to this you know we have an uptick in the amount of information that we can consume there's high social media use there are multiple stressors in the environment so many so many um like wars and strife, and there's just a lot going on, right? So like, it's probably a combination of the biopsychosocial stressors that are leading to these people walking around, still functioning, but not quite feeling their, like their full self and feeling blah and experiencing high rates of anhedonia. And and um, one of the studies that I'm doing in my lab independently, um, irrespective of, of, of the companies that I work with, is looking at the high, high functioning depression as as a prodrome or a, um, a, 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 the what it looks like before you eventually develop a depression or what it looks like before you develop uh, develop a substance use issue or you know what it looks like before your body breaks down because you can't take it anymore. I want to see if we can support people before it gets to that point because I do believe that the way that the world is changing and what we're experiencing you know in the human experience makes us at risk for heightened mental health issues. And and depression is one of those things. I wanted to go back a step with the acronym TIEs.
0: And one of the things that we hear a lot from our listeners is the identity loss, is not feeling themselves, not knowing where they're going to go. And you talk a little bit um, about radical acceptance, cognitive. Can you talk about your advice for women who are feeling that way?
2: There's a huge gap in terms of research, but one of the areas where there is significant research is cognitive behavioral therapy, and we still need more studies. But um, with regards to the other modalities to support the ties, I mentioned that Over the pandemic, people were self-diagnosed with ADHD. Well, that led to a stimulant shortage. And I even did a special for Good Morning America where we talked about how people are just being prescribed stimulants that don't need to be on stimulants. But that led us in psychiatry to become resourceful and to pull out organizational skills therapy, which is a type of therapy that child psychiatrists learn in training to support children with ADHD. And this includes multiple skills like using different modalities to organize using things like a launch pad which is an area of your home or school or work where you put all of your essential items like your keys your wallet your phone so you don't lose them using decluttering methods so that life decisions are simple for example you know with the with the children and young adults i work with we'll have a part of the closet that is specific for your go to what to wear so you don't have to think about anything else or using old-fashioned filing systems that are color-coded so that you know that subjects are in the right place. Well, guess what? Organizational skills therapy supports people with executive functioning issues, even in some cases where people are experiencing brain fog. So um, I've I've utilized a system to um, support women who are experiencing these cognitive issues by using these organizational skills therapy modalities that we typically use for ADHD or mild cognitive impairment and dementia to support women while they're going through these temporary executive functioning issues. The identity part of ties I've utilized mindfulness techniques from something called dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a therapeutic modality that draws from Eastern philosophies and incorporates cognitive behavioral therapy into it To allow women to feel grounded, because when you're feeling identity loss, you become dysregulated. So we teach women how to use practices in mindfulness so that when they're feeling this way, in that moment, they can challenge these thoughts by staying present in the moment so that they have the capacity to regulate their mood and to pick and choose which moods they decide that they want to feel, which is... If you can give a woman that agency and mastery, you can help them through any moment of emotional dysregulation. But if you don't know that these type of tools exist for this, then you won't be able to use them. And so dialectical behavioral therapy principles can be applied to these identity issues. And the reason I thought of that is because DBT is traditionally used to treat certain conditions like borderline personality disorder. And in borderline personality disorder, there's something called identity Diffusion where people feel as if they're constantly figure, trying to figure out who they are. Well, we use a lot of DBT methods to help people to, to have less of this identity diffusion. And if we can train um, women who are going through these identity issues with menopause, how to utilize mindfulness in these moments of distress, then they have more agency and mastery. And I mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy is, is, one, is one of the few uh, therapy modalities where there's sufficient data to support women um, during perimenopausal mood changes. Cognitive behavioral therapy can help women to challenge automatic negative thinking that comes with the anxiety and the depression, depressive symptoms that can happen in perimenopause. And using CBT methods and practicing them when you're not in moments of distress will allow you to be able to pull on them when you need them. But again, it's hard to start implementing these things in a moment of distress. It's better to start learning and preparing for them when you're in a calm state. Um, The insomnia part of um, cognitive behavioral therapy is proven to be just as effective, if not more effective, than certain sleep aids. So rather than taking like a, a, a sleep medication, if you're able to utilize tools learned in CBTI, you may be able to have better sleep. And sleep is so restorative. We need sleep to think better, to feel better. We need sleep for just about anything, you know, to fight off uh, um, viruses and, and illnesses. And if you're able to start learning proper sleep hygiene, learning CBTI, before the ch- these changes occur, then you're you're going to be set up... Um, to be in a better place, and um, and and that's why this is important because you don't want to start doing these things when you're in crisis mode. In, in my line of work, we we always try to teach skills before you're in crisis because anyone who's under a great amount of stress, try teaching them during that time. It's like the worst time to learn. the The stressed out brain is not the best retainer of knowledge, and so practicing these things beforehand, learning about these things before your body and your mind goes through through these changes, is really going to prepare you for having the best outcome.
1: Yeah, we had spoken to someone that said your IQ goes down when your emotions get really high, that your IQ goes down. And, And I can, you know, when you were talking about to help someone where they're in that stressed situation is not the best time to do that. And So what would be a good example to give someone just to start with a, a cognitive behavior therapy? like if You mean like feeling... if they can't do what they used to do? Right. Or if they get this moment of anxiousness and they're not knowing what to do, what is a good first step?
2: Well, cognitive behavioral therapy is typically something you do with a therapist. But there are practices that you can do. If you Google cognitive behavioral therapy, there are online free resources where there are worksheets that you can download and and, um, activities that you can do to challenge negative thoughts. And some of these activities look like, okay, what is the thought? How strong is the thought on a scale of one to whatever you want to choose? How does it make you feel? Okay, how can we challenge that thought? So you're basically learning how to put these thoughts on trial and then practicing putting these thoughts on trial and then seeing how you feel afterwards. So, uh, and and the reason that this is helpful is because sometimes feelings can feel like facts But they're not, feelings are not facts. And if you learn that early in the process of life, then you learn how to regulate your emotions. And when you learn how to regulate your emotions, then you can have more thought um, agency, more mastery, and also you know how to control your behaviors and the way that you respond. So the idea is that you want to start working on these mindfulness and, and, and psychological practices Early in life, uh, the same way that I tell women that I, I work with, you know, if you if someone were to tell you to start saving for your retirement in your fifties, you'd look at them like they were crazy. Well, why would you treat your body any differently? Start preparing for your um, your body's longevity early in life. so And it's never too late because I don't want people to listen and be like, oh man, I wish I started when I was in my 30s and now I'm in my 50s. It's never too late. Um, So when you start thinking about what to do to set you up for um, a higher quality life um, and, and lifespan, things like decreasing your stress or learning how to cope with stress in an adaptive way, you know, I mentioned some of those tools like the CBT, the DBT, the mindfulness. Start thinking about that now. Start practicing those things now. Um, you know, decreasing the amount of toxic people in your life. You know, you may not be able to cut people off completely, and I don't suggest that, but limiting the amount of exposure to these people, um, deciding who you want to give these your precious time to, being around people who actually feed your your mind, body, soul, and they don't drain you if possible. These are really important things that, you know, you think that they're all like loosey-goosey, but they actually are evidence-based to show that you have a better physical outcome, when you like limit toxic people, um, limit toxic behaviors and habits. Smoking is something that everyone can start to work on if you're a smoker. Decreasing that sets you up for better menopause outcome. Um, decreasing the amount of alcohol you take in that really significantly impacts both your your mood symptoms and your physical symptoms as you go through the, the these this transition. Um, you know, the, the exercises that you did in your twenties are not gonna help you in your in your fifties. So you you're gonna have to shift your your movement regimen and start to implement more weight-bearing exercises and thinking about things that you can do to improve your balance because your balance and your proprioception, the way your body interacts with the world and the environment, that changes as you age. So you wanna be able to, to start preparing your body so that. When you go from a sitting to standing position, you have, you know, more of an anchor, uh, and, and weight bearing exercises and and more high intensity type of exercises help you. Um, and then diet really is, is important, something that's often neglected. You know, in our 20s we're thinking about calorie counting and having like all this like nice juices but no we have to think about protein so start building up the amount of protein that you eat um, all of these things can support your body and your mind there's a whole field of nu- called nutritional psychiatry where food is medicine and you're literally eating foods to help you beat depression and anxiety so start thinking about reading those books and and incorporating those type of nutrients into your diet because you're you're it's it's like money in the bank right but the bank is you you're the physical bank so you're putting you're setting yourself up for a rich um healthy life rich not monetary but physically and mentally rich um but you got to start preparing for that today that's not something you can automatically do it's never too late but it's better to start preparing today and I would actually, we had Dr. Uma Naidu on a
0: few months ago, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she talks a lot about nutritional psychi- psychology. And I would recommend the, that the listeners go over and listen to that episode as well and read her book.
2: I'm glad you, that you have guests talking about nutritional psychiatry because inflammation is a model that um, belongs in the bio part of the biopsychosocial, you know, things that we eat, our environment can really harm our body. And, and low inflammatory states, are they really set us up for better outcomes in terms of our mental and physical health. And a lot yep. of these um, diet programs are focusing on nutri- nutritional ways to decrease inflammation.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Joseph. We truly appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure.
1: Well, I am completely thrilled that we had Dr. Judith Joseph on our podcast. I have been following her since I can't even remember when I started following her on TikTok or on Instagram. And it's really great just to hear her talk to us about these issues, especially as they're related to menopause and what we are going through as women. I really appreciate her time because she is a very, very busy person. And make sure that you are following us. Listen, rate, and review. We have this
0: on YouTube. And remember, you can always ask us questions at hotflashescooltopics at gmail.com. We don't have most of the answers, but we will certainly find the people that can give them to you. Have a great week, guys, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.